Father, we uh, praise you. God, we acknowledge that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. That you're the same God of the Old Testament as you are here today in March 1st, 2009 in Windsor, Colorado. Lord, we thank you that your character is steadfast, that you are unchanging, you're immutable, you're merciful, you're holy, you judge righteously. Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that is infallible. It's inerrant. It's without error. And we thank you that you give us everything we need for life and godliness. There's nothing missing. Lord, we love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Uh, My name is Dan Hardy, and I want to welcome, as Chris did, some of you that are new. It's good to have you here uh, with us today. This is Windsor Community Church, and our mission is that we exist to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what we're all about. We want to see people come to know the risen Lord and grow in the love and knowledge of, of Jesus. At Windsor, typically we teach through a book of the Bible. And we're in the, I think, third or fourth week of Genesis. We finished up First Peter last year, and we're starting Genesis. And we're going to be here for a while. And it's, uh, it's the first time we've taught through an Old Testament book. And we're, uh, we're very excited about it. We're very challenged by it. There's actually going to be some things today that I've learned this last week that actually is going to correct some of the things I said last week. So one thing you get at Windsor Community Church is guys at an elder board, Dean, Chris, and I, that don't have all the answers. We are daily dependent on the Lord and daily dependent on His Word and the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's just a great place to be. And I, I couldn't think of anything I'd rather be doing this morning than opening the Word with you. Last week, we took a look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Today, we're going to, God willing, go through verse 3 through 11-ish. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Last week, I thought we'd make it through 26 today. So uh, we'll, we'll see where the Lord takes us. If you remember, the first two verses are a declaration made by God. Okay? It's really a statement that is a summary or a declarative statement of the upcoming detail that we're going to see in the first six days of creation. It says in verses 1 through 2, in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, this is the account of a self-existent God that has been around forever. He is eternal. He is self-existent, who creates... And the Hebrew word literally is bara, B-A-R-A, creates, divinely creates out of nothing. He started with nothing and created the universe. The Hebrew name, as we talked about last week for God here, is Elohim. And Elohim literally means powerful or majestic. And I can't think of two better words to describe God in the creation account than powerful and majestic. Can you? The more I read this, the more puny I feel. I mean, it just, it just trying to understand and comprehend the depth and breadth of what the Lord has done. Elohim is used 32 times alone in this chapter, the first chapter of, of Genesis. Elohim is a general name for God, used throughout all the historical books. And one thing that I didn't talk about last week, and honestly, I don't know if I can say this, you know, I'm a pastor. I wasn't convinced of it. I wasn't convinced of it. And Elohim is, is, is a plural noun. 
There's no convincing there. It is. It's a plural noun in Hebrew. And to kind of put that in perspective, when what would the word for one angel be? Cherub. A plural of that is cherubim. Okay? So Elohim is a plural noun. And it means one of two things. It either means trinity, it's all three persons of the Godhead working, or it's multiple characteristics of God. And it seems to me that it is more than likely the trinity. But even if it's not, we know that the trinity is at work in the creation account. We know it because it says that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the water. We know in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, where it says that Jesus, the Word of God, was present in creating on day one. And we know that God the Father was there. So Elohim, I just want to tell you that there is some, not controversy, but just different takes on exactly what that means. No matter what, we know that the Trinity was present in creation. I mentioned last week that we're not going to take a look at science. We're going to stand behind Scripture and not stand behind science in these sermons all throughout Genesis. Our primary hermeneutic, and hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. Our primary hermeneutic is going to be that Scripture proves Scripture. And it happens time and time again. I'm so excited because we're going to to see it today. And I trust that we're going to see it just about in every message uh, until we're done with Genesis in 2015. In other words, to understand Scripture, to understand the origin of the universe, to understand the origin of man, we need to look at theology, not science. In fact, did you know that theology was one time called the queen of science? And we've lost that. And I'm not saying that science is bad, but I'm saying, and when we take a look at this, you're going to see that it's bad. No, it's not bad. It's, it's, uh, it's just not necessary. Theology versus science. Let's get past the idea that science makes any contribution to the understanding of creation, because it makes none. I want to give an illustration. Let's say that you lived in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And you walk up to Lazarus and you go, hey, Lazarus, you're dead, huh? You're looking pretty good. Can I follow you around for a few days, watch you sleep, watch you eat, watch you interact? Maybe watch you scratch your head a little bit. And then we keep a little record of everything Lazarus does. We watch him, watch the way he sleeps. We count his heartbeat, number of breaths per minute. We could keep observing him every day. And it would tell us nothing about how he was raised from the dead. It would tell us nothing. It was a supernatural miracle. Creation is the same thing. Or let's say that we were in Galilee the week that Jesus fed the 5,000 men, women, and children. And we started surveying these people, saying, you know, how did, what did you, I mean, how did that food digest? I mean, did it taste okay? Um, did you get sick? I mean, what, I mean, did it just appear on your lap? What happened? That, I submit to you, would not help us prove that Jesus multiplied the fish and the bread. So science, we need, we need history. We need proof to use science to be valid. And in these miracles, and creation is nothing more than a miracle. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But all I know is that Scripture is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. And its historical content is undisputed through centuries after centuries. 
It's a history book. For us, it's the book of life. It is our playbook. What I'm saying is creation has no connection at all to science anymore than the behavior of Lazarus could in any way reveal how he was raised from the dead. Creation, again, is not a scientific event. It cannot be explained scientifically. Creation was a massive supernatural miracle. That's it. Hebrews 11.3, I love this verse. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. That's it. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Then it goes on to say, So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God created it ex nihilo, out of nada, nothing. Last week we didn't spend much time on verse 2. Verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, or the sea, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Remember, the first two verses are a summary statement, or it's a declarative statement. We're going to see that the earth and the sea, the sea is a deep, they were created on the third day, and we're going to just touch on that today. We're just going to get into the creation account on the third day where he formed the earth and the sea. I want to point out an interesting parallel for future study. We're not going to go very deep in it today. And that's how the earth was described here in verse 2 and what it will look like at the end of the age. It says in this verse that the earth was without form. And the Hebrew for that is a tohu. And a tohu literally means confusion or chaos. Then it goes on to say that the earth was void, which is a bohu, which means empty. The earth was completely empty. And here's what's cool. Here's the illustration that someday we'll maybe dig deeper into or you can do it in your own study. And that's that the earth will apparently return to the same state of confusion and emptiness after God's wrath. And we see it in Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 24 through 26. And here's what it says. It says, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form, a tohu. It was void, a bohu. I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void and to the heavens and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before His fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. There's hope for the believers is what that's saying. For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above be dark. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. So this this emptiness, this void that was there at the beginning of creation is going to be the same state that the earth is after God pours His wrath out on it. All right, we're going to dig into verses 3 through 10 or 11. And let's pray again before we do that. God, we just thank You for Your Word. We thank you that it is, it's, it's, they're your words. Uh, you've breathed them. And that your word is good for correction, for reproof, for teaching. And God, I pray that for the rest of this message, Lord, as I open your word, God, that you would move me out of the way. God, please uh, edit uh, my notes. Lord, please bring things to mind that you want us to learn that I don't have on this piece of paper. We thank you that you're the sovereign God. We thank you that we have your Holy Spirit that gives us understanding of your scripture. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so now we're getting into the details of creation. The first two verses, again, were the summary statement or the declaration. Now we're getting started in the details. 
In verse 3 through 5, let's read it. It says, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness He called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. Let's take a look at verse 3. God said, Let there be light. And there was light. This is the first direct quote from God that we see in the Bible. Verse 3. Scientists can fuss and fume, they can muddle, they can complain, they can object. They've done it for decades, they've done it for centuries to try to figure out where light came from. Because the sun and the stars and the moon, we're not going to see those until the fourth day. Yet there's light. There was no light. God said, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. The one who is uncreated light, brought into existence, created light. The one who, according to 1 Timothy 6.16, says, He dwells in unapproachable light. This same God commanded created light to exist in a place where there was only darkness. And you say, how can that be? How can there be light without sun? You ready? I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to throw out some thoughts. But I don't know. Some scholars believe that light was the effulgent splendor of His divine presence. It was a presence, the glory of God. New Testament writings agree that it was reflective of God's presence in the form of of the Son. Now get this, would you open up your Bibles to John 1, verses 1 through 5? I mean, I think a lot of you have probably read this verse before. I've read it a hundred times before. And it's just, it struck me. The last couple days, like it hasn't struck me before. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right before the book of Acts. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word here is the Son. It's Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and the Word... and. And Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Okay, get this. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I think we can make a pretty biblical case that the light was the was just the glory of God shining at that time. Because as we're going to talk about, I believe that Genesis is a chronological, chronological day by day through the book of Genesis. Okay? Some might say that, that it's, it's just out of order. It's not out of order, folks. In Revelation 22, verse 5, in the new heaven and the new earth, we, there will be a recreation. God will recreate it after His wrath. And it says, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I can't explain it. I can't explain it. But if God is able to form the universe out of nothing, who am I to think that he can't light it up as well? Let's take a look at verse 4. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. When God said it was good, that's a pretty high standard. If God says it's good, it's good. He is the original standard of what's good. 
The incomparable goodness of God depends on all light, dry land, seas, various kinds of animal life. Everything there was was good. The reason it's bad is not because of God. It's because of the fall of man. It's because of our sin. It's because of the rebellion. It's because of the corruption. God created it good. It started out good. And the second half of this verse says, And God separated the light from the darkness. Isaiah 45, 7 says, God is the one forming light and creating darkness. This is the beginning of days. This is the cycle of days and nights. He separates the, the light from the darkness. And these days would operate consecutively for given periods in an unchanging cyclical order. Folks, these are 24-hour literal days. And we can do different gymnastics with science, but if you look at hermeneutics, there is no way, when you look at Scripture, to think that these are nothing more or nothing different than 24-hour literal days. And we're going to take a a look at that in just a minute here. Let's look at verse 5. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Evening and morning. The first day. Just let that sound in. It's almost ridiculous. Evening and morning. The first day. Did I say the first day? He gives it... He gives them names. He called the light day and the darkness he called night. And so it was. It's always been that way. Since the first day, there's been light and there's been darkness. When daylight passed, the period allotted to darkness was called evening. When the dark passed, the period after that was called morning. Let's take a look at this this 24-hour day. How in the world... Can the word day mean something else? But it does. And I don't mean to demean that in any way. But there is, in the evangelical church today, in Bible-believing churches today, it's being taught that day here is some kind of long period of time. The word day here is the Hebrew word yom, or yom, Y-O-M. And it literally means day. It's used in the Bible to indicate a 24-hour normal solar day, or sometimes it refers to the daylight portion of the day. You might say, this has been a beautiful day, or it's a beautiful day outside. And you're referring to the daylight portion of that. That'd be the same way that the Hebrews would use that word. Yom was found 1,480 times in the Bible. Over 1,100 of those times, it means literal 24-hour day. When it's modified by a number, when Yom is modified by a number, in other words, day one or day two, it always means a 24-hour day. No exception. None. Stick that in your back pocket. That's what it means. Take it to the bank. Sometimes day is used in Scripture to refer to some period of time not precisely defined. Job said, my days are vanity. Solomon Ecclesiastes talks about days being vanity. Psalm 90 verse 9 says, our days are passed away. And it doesn't define the period of time, does it? But even at that, days still mean some finite succession of normal days. You know? It's not some vast age of millennial years or millions of years in spite of what what science tells us. Either God's Word is all true, 
or none of it's true. Why did God take six days then? Why didn't he just do it in six seconds or six minutes? The answer is is he wanted to establish a pattern. Our God is a God of order. In Exodus chapter 20, he gives us the pattern. And he says this. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord our God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, male or female, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God wanted to establish a pattern for mankind. And that pattern was you work six days and you only have one day when you set it aside for for rest and replenish. Now, we don't want to get legalistic with that. I think God's given us some freedoms there. But the point is that that the Lord did it in six 24-hour days to establish a pattern. He could have done it all in the blink of an eye. If, in fact, it took him billions of years, then the pattern's ridiculous. God's work of creation set the pattern for man who bears his image. Six days you work, one day you worship. Henry Morris in his book, The Genesis Record, says the following. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. As though in anticipation of a future misunderstanding. God carefully defined his terms. The very first time he used the word day, he defined it as the light to distinguish it from the darkness called night. Having separated the day and the night, God had completed his first day's work. The evening and the morning were the first day. The same formula is used at the conclusion of each of the six days. It's obvious that the duration of each of the days, including the first, was the same. It is clear that beginning with the first day and continuing thereafter, there was a period established of cyclical succession of days and nights, periods of light and periods of darkness. Folks, there's no other way to interpret it. I know that for some of you, I haven't talked to any of you about this, but for some of you might be choking on it because science seems to have some pretty definitive conclusions. But God's word is either true or it's not true. And the way God's word spells it out is it's a literal 24-hour day. You say, well then, how did these evangelicals come up with ages and billions of years? Not from Genesis. Genesis. Only factors outside of Scripture. False scientific theory imposed on the Bible. You know, false scientific theory and higher criticism coming from unbelieving scholastics have caused Christian scholars to torture the text with unwarranted interpretations. This has come from science, but it has infected the Christian church. There's absolutely nothing whatsoever on the pages of Genesis 1 and 2 that allows anything but a six 24-hour solar day creation. Henry Morris also wrote something called Biblical Cosmology and Modern Science. At first I thought this was about like facials and stuff like that. That's the wrong word. Biblical Cosmology and Modern Science. It says in, in, in chapter 6 in this book is on the subject of world population and Bible chronology. And this, this is an amazing statistic. Is there any math people in here other than Pastor Chris? John? Okay. So you, can, you might have to help me out with some of these big numbers. And if I'm wrong, don't tell me. No, tell me. It says, with painstaking detail and the aid of mathematical equations, 
Henry Morris shows how the world population is an indication of the age of the earth. I've never heard this before. In a later work called Scientific Creationism, he shows that an extremely conservative average population growth of one half a percent per year, which is a fourth of what the the universe is. We've been growing at about 2% a year. So in this equation, he takes a half a percent growth. And if we do that, if you take it, if you go backwards, it goes about 4,000 years to, our, to, to get our current population. Okay? So if you take the population and you assume it's been growing at a half a percent a year, that goes back 4,000 years, which is about the time of the flood. Okay? If, if population has been growing at a half a percent a year for millions of years, here's, what, here's where the math thing comes in. Here's what he writes. It begins to be glaringly evident that the human race cannot be very old. The traditional biblical chronology is infinitely more realistic than is the millions of years history of mankind assumed by evolutionists. He says if they were right and there were millions of years, the population of the earth now would be 10 to the 5,000th power. (laughs) Easy for me to say. Big number. And if we eventually were able to colonize all the other worlds in the universe and to build space cities everywhere in the interstellar spaces, it could be shown that a maximum of no more than another big number could be crammed into the entire known universe. Have you ever thought of it that way? That the population is multiplying. In fact, that's one of the first mandates that God gave us is to multiply. And if we've been multiplying for millions of years, there's people somewhere that I don't know about. And it's not in Windsor, as Pastor Chris said. There is a little fact that scientists miss. That when God created the earth, He created it as is. He created a mature earth. He created Adam and Eve as adults ready to multiply. He created trees and plants and animals mature. What do I mean by that? Well, on the first day, He made light and darkness. On the second day, He made the heavens. On the third day, He made the earth On the fourth day, he made the heavenly bodies that provide light. On the fifth day, he made fish and birds. On the sixth day, he made land, creatures, and man. He made them all mature, fully developed. Adam was not an embryo. He was not a newborn. He was a fully grown man. If you found an oak tree in the Garden of Eden, if you were there on that day of creation, and you sawed it, you would see rings in there that would tell you that that oak tree has got some life to it. But he created it mature. He didn't just spread the seeds out when he was creating. There was trees, and there was buffalo, and there was creepy things, and whales. Full grown. And if you looked up into the heavens like Adam did, you saw an incredible expanse above you. And you wondered how long it had been there. And in Adam's case, about 48 hours. God turned water into wine in an instant. He raised Lazarus from the dead in in an instant. He multiplied fish and loaves in an instant. Why is this creation thing such a hard one for us to swallow? That's a pretty spectacular first day, isn't it? There's an interesting parallel to salvation. There's a cool and very significant analogy here between redemption and creation. And I'd never seen it before either. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness. Let's just stop there for a moment. What's he referring to there? 
What's Paul referring to? He's referring to creation. God said, let there be light. So Paul sees in the original creation of light a picture, an analogy of the light of salvation. He goes on to say, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Folks, God creating light in the midst of the darkness by His sovereign instantaneous power is a picture of what He does in the darkness of our heart. That when we came to salvation, our heart was dark. In fact, it says in Scripture that our heart was like a stone and He turned it into flesh. But He shined the light into our heart and saved us. And it's just a neat, neat analogy. If you introduce some convoluted concept of evolution into the book of Genesis, you tamper with His sovereign, divine, instantaneous miracle of God giving life to the universe, or creating the universe and giving life to man. Because our salvation is every bit as much of a miracle as the creation account. Some of us, it's a bigger miracle than others. Jonathan Edwards says, What a magnificent picture of the life of a believer. In the darkness and in a split second, the light shines in his heart, and he lives in the light, but the process of sanctification just begins, and he flourishes and he becomes richer and fuller until one day he enters into everlasting rest. Let's take a look at the second and third days. We're not going to spend as much time on those two days because I think we've got the framework pretty well covered. So the first three days, God is forming the universe. And we're going to see in the second half of the third day, he starts filling the universe. He fills it with vegetation, with the animals, with man, with the the stars, the sun, the moon, buffaloes. And it says in verses 6 through 8, And God said, Let there be an expanse. Some of your Bibles might say firmament. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now we're not exactly sure what the expanse is. It appears to be a divider between the water on the earth and the water in the sky. We know what the water on the earth is. It's the rivers, it's the ocean, it's the seas. We're not quite sure what it is in the sky. We do know that the heavens here they're talking about is the sky. Verse 7, God makes a declaration that God made the expanse. And that demonstrates that what God intended and pronounced in verse 6 has come to pass. He says, God said, let there be. And then verse 7 is a declaration that says, God made the expanse. So this just demonstrates that what God intended and pronounced in verse 6 has come to pass. He spoke and it happened. And we're going to see this in all six days. God spoke, it happened. God spoke, it happened. The waters that are under the expanse, as I mentioned, clearly define the oceans, but we're not sure. There's all kinds of uh, theories on the sky, and honestly, we're not going to be spending that much time on it. Let's take a look at the third day. Verses. Uh, we're going to go through verses 9 and 10, but I'm going to go ahead and read all the way through verse 13. It says, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, 
plant yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. There's two events taking place here in verses 9 through 10. The gathering of the waters in the one place. The oceans and the seas and the rivers are being formed. Dry land emerges with the basic dwelling places. Uh, God, what he's doing, he's creating the basic dwelling places. The sky for the birds, for the sun, the moon, and the stars. The sea and all that swims in it. The earth for man, the animals and creeping things. So now God here, he's already created the heavens the earth is now coming up out of the sea, or the, or the waters are receding. I'm not sure which, which way it went. But now everything is in place for God to start filling the earth. And next week, uh, Pastor Chris is going to be talking about that, I hope, because I told him I'd be getting through the end of chapter 1. Verse 9. There's two commands here in verse 9. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and two, let the dry land appear. There's some of you that know a lot of Hebrew. And I don't know much Hebrew at all, but I'm kind of learning a few words here and there. And it is critical to understand Genesis, to understand some of the Hebrew words. The Hebrew word for dry land is yabasa. Y-A-B-A-S-A-H. This refers to dry ground. And it often is the exact opposite of sea or of water. And we see it in Exodus when God parted the the Red Sea. If you look at the the Exodus story in chapter 14, verses 16, 22, and 29, it's the same word, it's the same dry land that the Israelites crossed through when when the Red Sea was parted. So folks, I just want to encourage you to be in awe of our Savior. We serve an amazing God, a God who is all-powerful, He is all-knowing, He is all-seeing. The God of the universe that, that formed and shaped the universe is the same one that got a hold of your heart if you put your faith and trust in the Lord. And if you're here today without a relationship with the Creator of the universe, I just want to urge you to seek Him. And if you seek Him, as it says in Revelation, you'll find Him. Better yet, He'll find you. And there's no better place to be than the loving arms of Christ. No matter what trial you're going through. Doesn't matter how bad finances are. Doesn't matter the sickness that's going on. That Christ promises to never leave you nor forsake you. And that is the best news on the planet. Let's pray. God, we do praise you. We worship you. We thank you that you are the sovereign creator of the universe. That you are the one that called us into a loving relationship with you. You're the one that saved us from eternal torment. You're the one that took the full wrath of God that we deserved and declared us innocent by imputing your righteousness into our heart. We thank you for the joy that we have in knowing you. And that there is nothing out there, there's nothing in this word 
no stimulus plan, no uh, sickness, no bankruptcies. There's nothing that can separate us from you. God, we love you. We say that all power and honor and glory is yours today, now, and forevermore. Amen.